Welcome to the Iron Mind Podcast. Join me, Josh Brumley, as we explore the minds of those who forged their paths through legal battles, business triumphs, and creative conquests. In each episode, we sit down with inspiring individuals who sharpened their resolve in the fires of entrepreneurship and law. From lawyers breaking barriers to entrepreneurs overcoming obstacles, we uncover the stories behind their iron wills and innovative minds. Get ready for thought-provoking conversations, practical insights, and actionable advice. This is the Iron Mind Podcast. We're here today with Steve Tool, who is a mediator, an arbitrator, a former plaintiff and defense, actually, uh, personal injury attorney. And uh, Steve, how many years have you been licensed as an attorney in Washington? Rather than do the math, I'll just say since 1976. One of the things that come to mind um, that that was really the reason I asked you to be a guest here today were uh, your experience doing uh, mediations as a mediator, your experience doing personal injury casework and, and being a trial attorney and being an arbitrator. So um, first and foremost, uh, do you have any tips for any young attorneys who are listening. I know you've written articles. You've done a, a lot of work in this area, um, helping to to guide other attorneys to, to be successful. But um, for people who don't know you or don't have access to your resources before today, what are, what are some of the tips that um, people can take away? Well, probably I should go back first before answering that question and give a little bit about my background. Let's do that. Uh, you asked me how long I've been an attorney. I said since 1976. So I started out, as I talked to you earlier, working for a tax attorney doing paralegal work in a field I knew absolutely nothing about, had no interest in, and hated. Uh, and about 11 months, but it was a job. Right. And about 11 months after that, a friend of mine from law school who was in Port Orchard, and I went to law school at the University of San Diego, said, Are are you looking for work? I said, you bet. <laughs> you betcha. And uh, so I moved over to Port Orchard, sight unseen, and um, had a small town practice, and we were across the street from the courthouse and the jail, and I always wanted to do criminal defense work, having grown up on Perry Mason. So that's what I primarily did. But in any small community, you do everything, uh, including personal injury. Uh, 1981, I relocated to Seattle and decided to do nothing but personal injury. And the person I worked for did both plaintiff and defense work. So for two years, I did both plaintiff and defense personal injury. Then I decided to branch out on my own. In 83, I moved to Bellevue and strictly did plaintiff's personal injury work. I didn't do anything else. And I continued that until switching to mediation and arbitration work in about 2011. Um, along this journey, uh, I, uh, I kind of developed a high volume, small value case pra uh, practice and, um, got myself known. I, I would do anything I could to kind of put myself out there. This was pre laptop, pre internet, pre social media, pre internet. Uh, Whoa. and, uh, yeah, it's hard to imagine it was pretty. <laughs> Pre-cell phones, I mean, I mean <laughs> and um, I, I, would, I joined the, what was then the Washington State Trial Lawyers Association, now it's WSAJ, Washington State Association for Justice, and I just went to seminars. I introduced myself to the stalwarts 
uh, and others and just got my name out there and eventually uh, made enough contacts I was asked to join the board uh, of governors of that association and I was on that board for 16 years and um, 2002 2003 I was elected president of then WSDLA and I uh, continued on the board a couple years after that but then I got I had, in the interim I'd gotten active in the state bar as well served on the board of governors of the state bar from 1993 to 1996 and then um, after I did my stint as president of Whistla WSAJ I became their liaison to the state bar so I would go to all the state bar board of governor meetings and one thing after another happened and I eventually was elected president of the WSBA in 2010 and 11 that includes a year of president-elect a year of president and a year of immediate past president then for a couple more years I served on some national bar uh, uh, councils and then I just said enough and I was developing my mediation practice while bar president and thereafter and I just said that's all I'm gonna do so I stopped handling all personal injury cases um, as an advocate and did strictly mediation and, and arbitrations I didn't actively seek out arbitrations but people sought me out and um, initially I didn't really like doing it because you there's responsibility as an arbitrator you have to make decisions the beauty of mediation I always thought was I'm not the decision maker and if I'm dealing with a very difficult case I would all and I'm and I found myself stewing internally boy how are we gonna resolve this I would always go oh it's not my case <laughs> not my problem <laughs> yeah I mean all I can do is point these things out to the parties and they have to make the decision in fact one of the things I am um, I've learned over the years and um, is since the, in this century the the progression and progress that plaintiffs trial attorneys have made in how to work up cases how to try cases how to be really creative and effective with juries um, means that some people who traditionally in my background maybe have a twenty-five fifty thousand dollar case it could be a several hundred thousand dollar case if done right and if the attorney really uh, um, works it up right and maybe it's good yeah. um, so as a mediator I don't really tell people that value is out of whack what I might tell them is if I don't know if you can get what you're asking for or not but the only way you're going to get it is from a jury because you'll never get the insurance company to pay that and that's fine you know uh, your client hires you if the client wants to roll the dice and go to trial to g try and get the big result that's super go ahead and do it but that's but what trials not, are there for yeah but we're not going to get it settled now that's the background that leads to the question you asked about um, any kind of um, tips uh, tips I might have for a young attorney in preparing for mediation uh, the first thing as far as a tip goes be realistic and what I mean by be realistic that doesn't mean that if you think you have a $300,000 case that you should open up demanding 350 or 400 I mean everyone knows that whatever you want to settle for you're going to ask for more 
how much more that's part of the be realistic. But I think there's two ways or two that you go into a mediation, maybe three. One is you're, go, you're doing it because you have to. You don't particularly think it's going to settle. You don't want it to settle necessarily. You're perfectly content in taking the matter to trial. A second is you do, you, if you get a good offer, you'd like to settle if it's reasonable. And there is a three, a third. The third is you've got problems with your case that you know about and hopefully the defense doesn't know about and you have to settle the case. And sometimes it's because the client will not go to trial. They're just too fearful of it or they just won't do it. Sometimes it's the client doesn't make a good witness or you've got skeletons in the closet, whatever it may be. But those are kind of the three scenarios. As a mediator, I don't like the first scenario because there's, if the party is just going through the motions, then why, what am I doing? Although I say that, and interestingly enough, I find I get a lot of those cases settled. And I think that's largely due to the plaintiff walks in thinking that no way the defense is going to pay anywhere near that, where in reality the defense maybe is more fearful than the, of the case than the plaintiff thinks, and maybe they won't get near that number, but they'll get to a good number. And as I was a practicing lawyer representing people, I always felt that the perfect defense offer is one that um, isn't what I really want, and I think it's maybe too low, but it's enough of an offer that it's hard to turn down. And I'll give you, an, I'm, get, I'm gonna get away from the tip, but it's a bit of a story, but I'll give an example. I mediated a case, I don't remember all the details, it was a very difficult trip and fall. Uh, a woman in a parking lot of a hotel tripped over the cement wheel stop where cars would come. And it was very, very difficult. She had a significant injury, what's called a Liz Franck's injury, an ankle injury. Uh, and she was a big woman, so it was doubly difficult. And um, we weren't getting the kind of money we wanted, but we were getting a decent offer. And this is decades ago, so the dollar amounts yeah. aren't really the issue. Uh, I feel like saying the defense as a final, final, final offer got up to $75,000. And I will tell you, at the time this case was heard, that's a, that was a good amount of money. And she couldn't decide what to do. And I said, well, what could you do with your share of seventy? dollars Her Actually, it may have been a result where her share was going to be $75,000. What could you do with that? If all you're going to do is take a vacation or, or pay off bills, roll the dice, you know, if that's what you want to do, and we'll see what we can get. But if there's something meaningful you could do, and with a lot of people it may be, uh, that would enable me to buy a home. Uh, education was very important to her, and she had a 13-year-old son. And what was critical was paying for her son's college education. And I said, well, for $75,000 at that time, now it pay for a year maybe <laughs> I said that'll pay for your son's college education complete she said yes it will well I said then think about that is that peace of mind of knowing your son's college education is paid for worth it to you to settle the case at this dollar amount which isn't a bad offer but you might be able to do better better and she made the decision that that that's something that was worth that peace of mind 
And I would use examples like that with, with clients. Um, but the key was they finally came up to that amount of money. Before that, it had always been something that she couldn't do anything. You know, it would be like, it's like, gee, I, 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 I owe $100,000. This will not even pay off 30000 You know, it's like, yeah, would you like to be able to do that? Sure, but it, it, it's unsatisfying. But this was something that they, they'd offered just enough that she had to give it a lot of thought. And sometimes you give it a lot of thought and you say, it's not enough, forget it. But sometimes it's enough. Um, so I think um, when I say be realistic, I've had people come into a mediation and uh, I'm going to round, just make up figures. Say, I want a million dollars on a case that I thought was worth fifty to to $100,000. As the mediation unfolded, it became clear to me they thought it was only worth fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, the plaintiff. Uh, you know, they were hoping it was worth more. But I think what they did is they didn't really have a good handle on how the defense would see the case or what it's worth. So they said, Well, let's demand a lot more, we can always negotiate down. That's not being realistic. The problem in that scenario is let's say the insurance company all along thought the case had a fifty to $100,000 value. So they, they start with $10,000. You know, they want to leave themselves room to negotiate up. Then what's the plaintiff do? Come down 10000 Now they're at 990000 Come down $50,000. Um, at some point, it's going to be obvious in the negotiating that the defense isn't moving much. So that leaves the plaintiff a couple choices. They come down dramatically at some point in time, which throws the client, the attorney's credibility out the window as far as I'm concerned. Or they get stuck on their high number and it doesn't, and a case that should settle doesn't settle, or at least doesn't settle at that time, maybe settles on the courthouse step where uh, the, you're no longer, you know, the other side just says, this is all we're going to offer, take it or leave it. And, and invariably what happens is that if the if the attorney takes it, they'll say, well, my client said they don't want to go to trial. When in reality, it was probably more the attorney that, that messed things up. So I always tell people, if you really, th if you're making a demand for a million dollars and you think your case is worth, let's say 500,000, fine. You probably have to do that to give yourself room to negotiate. But if you really think your case is only worth a hundred at the best, don't start at a million. I mean, be realistic. Otherwise, as you negotiate down, the defense is going to realize you're just bluffing, uh, you don't, or you don't know what you're doing. And so that's when I say be realistic. Is there a rule of thumb for being realistic when, when a new attorney or someone who's new to personal injury wants to make that first demand and doesn't, doesn't want to blow their opportunity to have room for negotiation, doesn't know you know, maybe what the future value of care is, all of these other variables. And I think that's why a lot of people will just pick some astronomical number because it's better to err on the side of caution, but it's not being realistic. So if a case in, in uh, an attorney's mind is worth 50 to 100, do you demand 300? Do you demand 250? Do you demand policy limits and just specifically say, just give me your policy? Well, first of all, if you're 
a newer attorney and you've got a case that that doesn't fall into what already in your experience is a run-of-the-mill case talk to other attorneys get a sense from others and particularly in this day and age of if you're a WSAJ member and if you're an eagle on the listserv you can you can you'll see names there'll be names of attorneys you see that you know have been around you can call them email them do whatever um or put something out to the masses um i'd rather do it smaller because i i wouldn't want people responding publicly necessarily um and get a sense now recognize one thing in my experience when you ask other attorneys what a case is worth a lot most of the time i'm not gonna say all the time but uh, most of the time you'll get a number back that's probably higher than the case is really worth other attorneys want to make i in my experience want to make it seem as though they're hot shots and maybe they are hot shots and so they they put a higher value on it or they they talk um a tougher game and i i think you have to recognize that but there's still value in getting that input so that that's one thing that gives you some idea you mentioned is one of the factors that the younger attorney may not know you don't know if there's gonna be future care or what a life care plan would be well if you've got a case like that you better have your life care plan in place before you go to settle the case or have a mediation um the only reason not to do that is if there's a limited amount of insurance and you know it's going to be a policy limits demand regardless um so i'm assuming you're at a point where you've got your ducks as much in order as they're going to be and maybe you've got a trial date in two months and discovery is almost closed um so the case is what the case is and whether another attorney could have worked it up differently so it would have a a greater value that's irrelevant at this point in time but in mediations i generally find that most of the attorneys that are coming to me plaintiff's attorneys with a demand it tends to be anywhere from 50 percent higher than what they want to as much as two-thirds higher it just really depends um it it also depends on when you come into mediation, you don't necessarily know what the absolute bottom line is that you'll accept. Sometimes you're, you feel the bottom line is, is here, but your client wants to go for this much. So you try and come up with the demand that satisfies your client so you can negotiate to that, but doesn't throw your value way out of whack if it has to come lower. Um, that's a scenario where, where a, a plaintiff's attorney can use the mediator to maybe help adjust the client's uh, expectations. expectations. Yes. I will tell you, if you are in that situation, it would be very wise to contact the mediator in advance so you can have a one-on-one conversation, tell them what the issues are. Now, a lot of young attorneys don't realize you're allowed to do that. Right. Mediation is not arbitration. You can have ex-party communications with the mediator. Um, the real problem is you and I've done mediations before. You know me, you would feel comfortable talking to me ex parte in advance of the case and being candid about your case. But what if you don't know me? Do you have that trust? Have you, do you have that trust level to be candid? Um, probably not. Or it's a, it's a tough proposition. 
What do you do about that? Well, again, you can use the listserv or other people and say, what do you know about this mediator? Um, you can just meet with me by Zoom or in person or on the phone and talk, talk for a half hour. You know, not all mediators are necessarily willing to do that. I am. Um, and get a feel for the mediator. You can go to my website. If it's me, I put forth my philosophy and uh, about mediation and, and all sorts of things about me personally. So you can get a feel for me. Now, this is one reason why I think it's one reason that I think is important for you to know the mediator or know of the mediator. A lot of times a suggestion comes up, gee, the other side has suggested X, Y, or Z. I don't know them. What, what do you think? Um, ideally, it'd be nice if you could get a mediator that, that you or people you have confidence in are familiar with, and then you can find out. But I think talking, I mean, I, I know speaking for me, and I think this is true of any good mediator. If you talk with an attorney for 15 minutes or 10 minutes or half an hour, you'll, you'll create rapport. They'll, they'll understand. And, um, now does that mean you as the newer attorney mediating case, go to that mediator and say, I'm going to tell you candidly, the absolute minimum amount we're going to accept is X and not a penny less. No, not necessarily. One, in my experience, plaintiffs have more flexibility than that. A defense attorney may say the most authority I have is X, and it may indeed be the most authority he has. Plaintiffs, all you have to do as an attorney is get together with your client in, in private and say, well, what do you think? He's made some points here we should consider, and you can adjust what you, how you see the case. With insurance companies, frequently has to go up the ladder. Frequently, that adjuster has already got, well, he, not frequently, always he submitted his proposal. He's gotten his authority. It may have been reviewed by a team of people up the ladder and to get additional authority other than maybe a few thousand dollars, they have to go through the process all over again. And it could be very difficult if he has argued his point as to why the authority he was seeking was the right authority. Now he's coming in and saying, I want more. So it's much harder for the defense to move than the plaintiff in a short period of time. I, the question had to do with how, what does a younger or newer attorney ask for? Yeah. And, um, said 50% to yeah, and it, and it depends. It's not a hard, fast rule. Um, but here's the thing. I, I had, a an older attorney that I, that I worked with, uh, we shared office space. He tried cases. I mean, he going back into the fifties and he didn't like negotiating. So if he had a case and again, this would be a really large case back in his day, but if it was a $50,000 case, he'd ask for $55,000. He'd give himself a couple thousand to move, or he'd ask for 50,000. He said, I'm not good. Not, I'm not negotiating. The problem is if you want to uh, try and get a reasonable settlement, whatever you ask for, no matter how reasonable the number is, the defense is going to assume you'll take less. Much like, if the opening offer from an insurance company is $20,000, you're going to assume they have more money to put on the table because they leave themselves room to negotiate. Now, unfortunately, sometimes they don't leave as much money as it's going to take. But the point is, it's the game and you have to play it. So, uh, so I've had people, uh, just an example, 
someone makes an opening demand of $400,000, they really are looking for $150,000. That would not be an unusual um, range. And the defense starts with $25,000, $30,000, whatever. And the plaintiff has said, well, let's come down $100,000. And I go, that might be too much. Because the message, I mean, that's a big leap. Why don't you come down 50,000? Just see what they do. In the next move, the defense comes up 10,000. So uh, you, and as a mediator, I, I'm, my experience, I draw my experience to read into those things. What does all that mean? Um, and I've gotten down where it's getting close. And the, again, the plaintiff attorney wants to drop down what I think is too much. Not because I think their case is necessarily worth more, but if if the number you say you want is what you want, you can't come down that much. You, you've got to play the game. But you rely on the mediator to advise you about that. Now, there are some, I'm not going to mention names, but there are some mediators that I've used when I was a practicing attorney that I, after using once, would never use again, who are not, who just want to take numbers. They're not going to assist you in arriving at the number you say you want. Now, I don't know that it's necessarily early on in particular, the mediator's job to tell you this is what your claim is worth. In fact, I don't think it is the mediator's job. But as the mediation progresses and it becomes clear the number that you and your client want, I do think it's the mediator's job to assist you and how can you get to that number? What do you need to your ne- what does your next offer need to be or what information you need to provide so we can maybe get the defendant to come up to that number? Uh, and it may not be possible, but the point is I do think that's within a, a good mediator's province to do that. What do you think of some plaintiff's attorneys using mediation uh, in a fourth way? which I'm not, I'm not sure if it makes sense just saying that, but... A discovery tool? A discovery tool to say, this is what the defense sees as the problems with my case. Let me take great notes about everything that they're wondering about. Why this? Why that? Why this? Why that? And then cure those issues and then move forward or have another mediation. Well, there's value to that, potential value. But there's some problems too. I mean, one of the tips, and it was part of this one A one B, is is know your case thoroughly and, and be prepared. And maybe that's the next one. And so there are generally three points in time that people mediate. One is pre litigation. You have a variety of reasons that you want to avoid. Uh, th- there's reasons to settle early. Maybe your client's insistent. Maybe um, if you think you can get the kind of value you want uh, without spending tons of money, and the earlier you do it, the better. Uh, A second is after some uh, discovery has taken place, but maybe it's not completed. And a third is after the discovery deadline. Everything's complete. You know your case. It's going to be as good as it's going to be. Well, the method you're talking about certainly wouldn't apply to that third category. And discovery's done. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, the problem with the first one, pre-litigation, in my experience, if an insurance company is willing to settle pre-lawsuit, 
it's because either they think it's conceivably a policy limits case and they're just trying to see if they can save a few bucks um, or they think the plaintiff is willing to take a, a significant discount. And uh, to me, that's true. Uh, I mean, I don't say it, but to myself, it's like, why would you want to settle this case at this point in time? Um, you're not going to get full value or even close to it. Uh, and there can be good reasons for someone to be willing to take a discount. And that's fine, but just go into the mediation understanding that. But when mediation started, I think there was, it was more common for people to use mediation as a discovery tool. I can't tell you the number, the strategies that you would learn about mediation. They would say, don't settle the first, at the first mediation. And attorneys would get their backs up, and if the, unless the defense made an offer of a certain amount, they'd walk out. Well, I don't have anybody walking out of mediations anymore. It just doesn't happen. Uh, now, I don't know if that's maybe the skill level of the mediators has has developed such that they're able to kind of keep everybody calm and keep everyone there, um, uh, or I, I don't know what it is. Or maybe there's not as much sales puffery going on, so not Could as be. much acting going on when plaintiffs' counsel and defense counsel get into a room because maybe yeah. they're more, um, hey, I respect your decision to not be able to offer more authority. You don't have more authority right now, and I guess we're just going to have to try this case. Well, if they if it's a case that they don't have more authority, then the mediation will end early. There's no reason to keep talking if it's become very clear that the two sides are never going to get close to each other. But I guess my attitude about mediation, and they're expensive enough these days. You know, it's not like you can mediate for $500 is I think people should be prepared and ready for trial. Well, I primarily think you shouldn't mediate pre-litigation other than in rare circumstances. And there are, those circumstances come up. But be prepared for trial. Have your ducks lined up. Have your experts lined up. Uh, the, uh, a lot of plaintiff's attorneys believe that they don't have to actually get a report or an opinion from their doctor that they'll say, well, of course the doctor's going to say this. You can read between the lines and the chart notes, and he says a reasonable treatment, necessary treatment, causally related to the accident. But the truth of the matter is, for the most part, insurance companies, the attorney may say, yeah, I, I, I suppose you're right, but quite frankly, my adjuster isn't going to be able to get authority for that particular injury being related unless you have it in black and white. That's just the way it is. And particularly if you're asking for a lot of money, if you're asking for a lot of money, then why not have it? It's one thing if you've got a $25,000 case and you don't want to spend $3,000 or $4,000 for a report or declaration from your doctor. But if you've got a case that you think is six figures or seven figures or well, even larger, there's no, the, from the defense perspective, there's no reason that if you've got an argument, you shouldn't have it nailed down before talking because they're not going to pay that kind of money unless they are fearful. Um, so can you use it as a discovery tool, then go away and say, okay, now I know what I have to do to prepare for trial. You could, but why, why not do it before you do the mediation and to say, I'll do that and then we'll mediate it again. The problem with that, and I think you've experienced this with, with me, many, very, very often, 
once the insurance company has settled upon a value for a case, it takes mountains to move them uh, other than a few thousand dollars. Um, it just, uh, now I had a case as an example, I was going to bring this up under a different question, but I had a case that we mediated. The plaintiff demanded uh, uh, rough numbers, $480,000. They told me early on they would take two fifty. The defense was at like $60,000. And they're just, then all of a sudden, after just a couple rounds, the plaintiff said, we're not negotiating anymore. We want four eighty. They'd already told me they would take two fifty. I didn't know that I could get the defense up to 250, but I thought I could get them to 150, 200,000, and it'd be something worth talking about. Mediation ended. Disaster. And the plaintiff didn't have any reports from experts. None. Didn't have a doctor, didn't they were talking about all sorts of impacts and had no extra reports. And the defense was saying, give us something. A year later, I'm contacted by the insurance company again. They say, Steve, we'd like you to resume mediating this case. And I said, I don't know if that's going to work because the client was not happy with my mediation job. Even though actually the client's attorney had screwed up, but of course didn't tell the client that. And so the client blamed me. Well, in the meantime, the client has a new attorney, someone with whom I've worked and is a very good attorney. Um, and, they had got, went and got an expert. Uh, this wasn't the doctor. It was, um, um, I'm drawing a blank on the person's name, but, but he'd done a workup of the person to determine what his, his physical capacities and what he could do and what he couldn't do and what jobs he could do, what jobs he couldn't do. And it indeed made it a really big case. Policy limits were a million dollars. So the new attorney demanded a million dollars. And, 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 but first the insurance company contacted me and see if we, we, we've got a lot more money to put on this case. And they weren't thinking a million dollars. They had a lot more money. And the, so the attorney said, we want a million dollars. So I went to the defense and, and I said, I don't think we need a traditional mediation. Let's just go back and forth like this. And the defense, I don't, again, I don't remember exact numbers, but they came up to like $300,000 from 60,000. I thought that was pretty significant. Plaintiff's attorney said, no, we want a million dollars. We're not responding to that. I said, well, what, why, what are you relying on? And I, I had a candid conversation with the attorney. I said, I don't like your client. He's an attorney. A jury's not going to like your client. And I think the new attorney understood the dilemmas you have in representing uh, an attorney. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Um, We're the worst type of client. Absolute worst. <laughs> and, um, so I said, we can't do, you know, we had to do it this informally because I would get nowhere with this client in a room. And the guy said, I know how to deal with that. And this is an attorney who the, the new plaintiff's attorney is a very creative attorney gets million dollar results in cases that someone else might get a hundred thousand. I mean, this is a good attorney. Um, just a back down home kind of a guy, nothing fancy. And, so I said, well, tell me how you're going to make the jury like uh, your client. And he explained it. And I went, okay. And gave me something to talk to the other side about. And, and I knew about some of his results. So I said, well, tell me about some of the other cases you've had that are somewhat similar um, and where I can share results. And he had a lot of them on a website. So I, I, I got them from him. 
but the real key was he was telling me why this expert's report was so critical. I, and I had said, send it to me. Let me read it. Well, it's one of those 50-page reports that, that you fall asleep reading. I went to the conclusions. And it's like, okay. So I talked to him about it. He said, it's not in the conclusions. That's all the defense does. They read the conclusions and they see big deal. But if you go look at the analysis, the tests that were run, the comparison tests of how he did this way and how he did that way, here's what's significant about them. And I had, I, this was a separate Zoom call. I did these via Zoom calls. And, um, and the, the co-counsel for the plaintiff went over them in detail and highlighted, see this number here, this means that. And, and the guy will say, this number means that. You can see a decrease in his ability to do that particular thing. And he went through it all, and it was great stuff. I would have never been able to figure that out on my own. So I then had a Zoom call with the defense attorney, and I got the office manager involved. I tried to get the insurance adjuster, but they said it's not necessary. And I went through all that, explained it. And... Um, they, they got it and to make a, what's a long story, not quite as long is they ultimately, they came up to 450 plaintiffs still wouldn't budge. Then they came up to 600 and I went to the plaintiff and said, look, you want your million dollars fine, but let's not keep negotiating. You know, 600,000 is a respectful offer and it deserves a response. If your response is no, we mean it. We're not coming off of a million dollars. Fine. That's, I've got no problem, but they had told me, no, we, we probably come off it. So then I, I got them to be candid about what they would do. And I think they came down to nine and a quarter or something. And, but, but I made certain that that wasn't there, that there'd probably be some more room. And I went to the other side and basically, I don't remember the final figure, but it settled for about eight fifty. And it was a combination of, it got worked up a year, you know, within the next year and they re and they got a really good attorney on board. And I was able, because I educated myself by talking at length with plaintiffs and going over that expert's report. And it was a well-known expert. I was, had the ammunition and ability to, to share that with the defense. So they understood and they knew how they were at risk. They didn't have anybody to counter it. And they knew they were in trouble. And the, fortunately, the insurance company was one who saw that and, and came up with a lot of money. Um, but so that's a case where it wasn't intentionally, well, let's just see what we're short on and then we'll work it up and mediate again. Uh, the first attorney just wasn't competent, didn't do the job right. And um, next attorney wasn't intending to try and negotiate a settlement. The, the, Next attorney was intending to go to trial. He wasn't going to renew negotiations, but the insurance company initiated it, and so it worked. But I think that's unusual. Usually the attorney will have had that information at the time of the first mediation. I mean, because that's what made the case. Why in the world would you demand almost a half a million dollars and not have that key information? Um, so I don't know if that really answers it so much as I... I think it's better to delay the mediation till you're prepared and then go after it. And even at that there, I've seen times where for instance, the plaintiff's deposition wasn't taken or a key doctor's deposition wasn't taken. And we put a hold on the mediation till that could take place. 
and that can work, but that's not really delaying because you're trying to find out what you need to do prepare for trial. It's just maybe you didn't appreciate that how critical that deposition would be. Um, because a lot of times the plaintiff and defense counsel don't really communicate very well before mediation and the plaintiff doesn't realize there's a liability issue. They, you know, they assume there's no liability issue. It turns out there is a liability issue. Well, if there's a liability issue, you're not going to settle that case unless you can really put your evidence out as to why that's, that's bogus. Or you, you realize, oops, this is an issue. We need to discount what we want to have because it could go either way. Thanks everyone for listening to episode one of Steve Tools Mediation Tips. Stay tuned for episode two where Steve goes into more detail about his 10 mediation tips and what to do to be successful. Thanks for listening.